We've been dealing with this uh, church series for a while now, and, and today we're going to talk about what I'm just going to call the, the most misunderstood indicator of a, of a healthy church, and, 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 I, and I do call it that, the most misunderstood indicator of a healthy church. We've been kind of looking at indicators, right? We've been kind of looking at what, what is, and I think, did I, let's go to the next one. I got the next one. We go slide over. There we go. Yes. The most misunderstood indicator of a healthy church. And because and, there are indicators of, of health, and we're going to talk about what it means for us to be together and not be, not be selfish. selfish. You know, selfish is a, um, selfishness is an interesting thing. It's, uh, if, you, if you think about it, selfishness, all sins, all sin, all, all sin has to start with selfishness. Because what is selfishness at its root, right? Selfishness at its root is saying, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it. Or not thinking of other people. Selfishness can take on a lot of different attributes, but in order for a person to sin, they've got to say, I really don't care what God wants, I'm, or I don't care what happens out here with anybody else, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And, and, and that's really what happened in the garden, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve basically said, I know we were told to do it this way, but we're just not. We're going we're to do what we want to do. And, and thus, that that, that's what happens. See, when, when selfishness is brought into the mix, a lot of stuff happens. In fact, James chapter 3, we're going to be going, by the way, if you, if you want to, to get ahead of me, we're going to go to 1 Samuel this morning. I thought we were in a church series. Well, we are, but I'm giving you a break from the New Testament this morning. We're going to go to 1 Samuel in just a minute. But in, in James 3.16, I love this verse. It says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. How many, how many times, hey, we've all been around selfish people. Like, you ever, have you ever been around a toxically selfish person? Like they, how many, you've worked with people, right? You've worked with people that are just, they're constantly driven by their own agenda. And when that happens, do you notice what happens? There's, there's, there's carnage. I mean, it, it, you never know what they're up to. They always have a motive. Selfish people hurt other people. And, and, but the truth is, I've been selfish, and you've been selfish too. Man, listen, I was an only child, and I was an only grandchild. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone, somebody said, oh, no. Yeah, you didn't have to say that, whoever you were. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's true. I had no hope. I had no idea how selfish I was till I got married. <laughs> I'm serious. I didn't know it. You think, That's, how can you not be? I didn't know but I found out fast, right? I, I just never had to think of other people, man. And, and, and I really didn't. Uh, and, and, but we, I've been there. And it's not sometimes you're selfish, you don't try to be. And then there's times you, you, you do try to be. We, but selfishness is hard. It's hard because we all have preferences, you know? I mean, think about it. And especially the older I get, man. The older I get, I, I have like, I find myself already having like ways I need things done. You know? I know nobody knows, y'all are, are looking at me like you're, you're just so unselfish and you never struggle with patterns, ruts, uh, desires, ways that you like the furniture in the house, uh, ways you like your lawn cut, ways you like your clothes pressed, all that good stuff. I know y'all don't, I deal with that. I'm just telling you, the older I get, I find myself getting way more rigid, right? 
way more rigid. It's just the truth. I think it's just what we do. But when it comes to putting a bunch of people, when you put a bunch of people in a church environment, it's really easy to have a lot of preferences. It's really easy to have a lot of personal ambitions. They're really just kind of the way you like things done. But the Bible says for where you have envy and selfish ambition, though, you find disorder. Man, that's a big word, disorder, and every evil practice. But, but here's the thing about the church. We, we, you know, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this morning in the, in the book of Acts, but you need to know the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the manual for the modern church, and, and you need to know the book of Acts. And I read the book of Acts all the time. And In Acts chapter 2, it says, day by day, the early church was continuing with one mind in the temple. So here's what gives me hope. Even though we all have all kinds of opinions, and even though we all have all kinds of want-tos, and even sometimes we project our want-tos and make them shoulds, you know, and stuff like that. We do that. I do it. You do it. Doesn't make us bad people. It makes us human. I mean, let's think about it, you guys. I mean, the reason that, you know, human dysfunction is, is uh, uh, the reason I have a job. And the more messed up y'all are, the more you need me around. So it's okay. I, I, you know, I, I can help you with it, I think. Um, but, but the reality is, what, what, what Acts 2 does for me is it gives me hope. I mean it. It gives me hope because it lets me know that it is possible that a whole bunch of people with different backgrounds and different stories and different parents and different grandparents and different sins and different freedoms and different failures and different successes that we can all, I mean, they had all of that too. They had all of that too. And it says they were of one mind. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't say. It doesn't say that they agreed on everything, right? I mean, let's, I've said this many times in my life, let's never mistake unity for uniformity. Uniformity is, is not unity. Unity just means that, that we, we put our personal agendas aside. In fact, in that, in that word, one mind, it doesn't just mean they... Let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the early church just all got along, you know. They all just got along. We're just going to get along. No, that's not what that means. In fact, the, the, the word for that is, is a, is a, is a two-part word, uh, homo thymodon, and it, and, and it means same passion. It's, it's two words put together. Homo meaning uh, same, uh, th- thymodon meaning... Or I, mean, I never did pronounce my, my Greek perfectly but anyway you get the idea same passion it means that they were of the same passion they had the same desires see that's that's what we're talking about and I think the most misunderstood indicator of a healthy church when we talk about unity so many people think oh it just means we almost get along Mm-mm. it means we have the same heartbeat it means we have the same want to right we have the same want to. So turn in your Bible to, to, to 1 Samuel 20. Now let me tell you, this is a really, really, really special, a special, um, special passage for me personally, me and Michelle actually. Um, I thought about this and for some reason I just couldn't leave this, this passage of scripture all week and I thought I think this is where we need to go this morning. Because I do think there's a thread that leads us all the way into the New Testament there were, there were two, there, there's three key players in this story. There's a, a, man, a man named Saul, he's a king, 
Okay, if you're, if you're, uh, maybe you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, then uh, that's okay. I, I, we were all new to church at some point. And, and so, so Saul is the acting king. In order for you to understand the Old Testament, let me give you a little inside uh, pro tip for a minute. You have to understand the political situation. If you want to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, you have to understand who the king was and what the king wanted. Because there was almost always a king somewhere in the mix. The prophets were going against the king, all, not 100%, but most of the time there was a king and you had to deal with him, all right? In this particular case, there was a king named Saul. And listen, if, uh, Saul should make everybody feel better about yourself, okay? Because he was really messed up, okay? He really was. He was a bad dude, okay? But Saul had a son, and his son was Jonathan, okay? And, and so Jonathan had a best friend, and his best friend was a guy named David. Okay, we actually named our two boys. Our, our Cole's name is Jonathan Cole Cruz. Um, I, I've always loved. I've always loved the idea of Jonathan because Jonathan was an encourager. I'm going to read to you the story of why Jonathan was an encourager. This story means a lot to me because so we named our son Jonathan Cole Cruz because Jonathan was was an encourager, and we named so when, when Tucker came around, um, we for a long time we didn't know what we were going to name Tucker. We asked Cole one day, and Tucker said, well, "Let's name him Fred Jones." And so, so uh, for for like. Eight months, Tucker was Fred Jones, and, and, uh, and we still call him Fred Jones from time to time just for fun, but, but um, we thought, what are we going to name, what are we going to name Tuck, and, and I thought, well, let's, let's name him Tucker David, because Jonathan and David had a covenant, and oh, I use it against them all the time, all the time. When they argue and when they're just sideways, I'm like, you know, boys, First of all, we know that now they just cut it off. They stop it before it gets started because I can go for a long time on this, okay? And they go, we know, Dad, you never had a brother. You never had a sister. You always wanted one, nah, 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 nah. you know? And I'm like, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a brother and I didn't have a sister. And I would have given anything to have somebody to argue with. I would have given anything to have somebody to get mad about basketball. I would have given anything for that, you know? But you guys are bound, and you're bound by a covenant in the desert of Ziph, okay? And, and they're like, yeah, I know, Jonathan and David, you know, you know, but I use it against them all the time. And this, this story means a lot to me. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, let me tell you, it spans like five, six chapters, so I can't read all that. But let me just give you the quick backstory. Saul is trying to kill David. Saul knows that God has chosen David, and he's mad about it, and he's literally trying to kill him. Now, Jonathan is the son, and so, so a lot's going on right there, and there's a, there, it's all kind of, you know how when you watch a movie, you can tell it's all about to come to a head, as they say? Well, it's all about to come to a head right here. We're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel 20, verse 12. So David is starting to run for his life. He, he knows, man, this guy is going to kill me. I, I don't know what to do. See, David is a farm boy. That's what I, another thing I love about the story. David is a farm boy. Jonathan's a noble. Think about how vastly different. One's a city boy, knows how to get an Uber. One's a farm boy who knows how to run a tractor. I mean, their worlds are colliding. In the most unique way. And so they make up this plan. So let me, before we read verse 12, David and Jonathan are trying to figure out if they can trust each other. 
I mean, they're really trying to figure out. Can't, I mean, I know we're friends, right? I know we're friends, but we need, how far does that go? Are we, are we buddies or are we blood brothers? It's, it's hard. So, so David and Jonathan come up with this plan that, that, that if, if they know that Saul's trying to make a decision and Jonathan's trying to figure out, is my dad actually intent on killing you? I don't think maybe he is. And David's like, oh, I know. I'm telling you, he's going to kill me. And so they come up with this plan, and this plan is that they're going to shoot some arrows into a field, and, and however far the arrow goes, David's hiding and he's watching so that Jonathan, Jonathan knows Saul's watching his every move and he's got spies, and so he goes and takes some, takes some practice, and he's like, if you see the arrow go this far, then you know, buddy, it's, yeah, it's too bad he is trying to kill you. But so, so it turns out that Jonathan goes, oh, wow, he figures out, yeah, my dad actually is trying to kill you, and he says, he's basically said it, he hasn't basically said it, he has said it. And he doesn't want you around. And so it picks up in verse 12. It says, of 1 Samuel 20, it says, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or on the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward you, David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? In other words, I'll tell you what his intents are. And if it pleases my father to do you harm then may the Lord do so to me if I do not make it known to you. In other words, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to betray you. And send you away that you can go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now what does he say? He's saying, David, I know you're supposed to be the king. Verse 14, and if I'm still alive, if, if I'm still alive, Will you not show me the loving kindness? We're going to get into that word. It's a big, long word. We're going to show you. If, if I'm still alive, if, if, in other words, if I'm not dead, if my father doesn't kill me, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness, David, from my house. This is Jonathan talking. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David. See, after, see it was custom that after you became king, you killed the family of the former king. Because you knew you can't trust them. There's going to be a coup d'etat. They're going to, they're going to get you. You're going, to be, you're going to have sabotagers for the rest of your life. You've got to get them out. So, verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made a, he made David vow again. I mean, they're trying to trust each other. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him. And I love this phrase. Because Jonathan loved David as he loved his own life. I love that. So let me, let me tell you what this modern day example, this is, this is the power of the story. And it has a lot to say about the church actually, I think. Let me give you a modern day example of the power of what's really going on right here, right? This is Prince William, okay? You, you, you've seen him uh, uh, tons of times. Him and Princess Kate, and he's the, now, now he's the, the next king of England. We all watched, if you're, you know, of any age at all, you watched him grow up, you you watched all the stuff happen with his mom and 
all the saga play out. So let me give you a modern-day example. This, this story of Jonathan and David, it would be like Prince William. So let, let's, let's pretend for a minute. Let's just say that the, the current king of England, his father, passes away suddenly from a heart attack. And, and, and now it's his turn. He's been groomed his whole life to be king. He's been taught how to be king. He's been taught how to rule. He has been coached his entire life for this moment. And he says, you know, I'm going to pass. There's a guy working in the outskirts of Yorkshire that's a farmer. You don't know him. You've never heard of him. In the eyes of nobility, he's a nobody, but in the eyes of God, he's more than a somebody. And he's going to be king, and I'm going to give up the throne. Can you imagine what would happen on Twitter? <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen on Facebook? Can you imagine what would happen in the London Daily Mail, in the news and all those things? That, that whole country is the... Man, they got it going on with gossip, buddy. Like, they got whole papers devoted to it, like, that come out constantly. I mean, it's paparazzi, all that. Can you imagine? That's, that's exactly what's happening in 1 Samuel. That these two worlds collide, and when you read the story, you see that these two guys come together, and it was, I mean, it was, it was for a minute, let's just pretend, it was Jonathan's rightful throne. I mean, it was his. Think about, think about the, the big, deep breath. You could go, okay, man, I'm never going to have to cook again in my life. If I want like a, I don't know, shark sandwich at 11.30 at night, I can have it delivered. I, 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 my, my family's never going to want for anything. I, I mean, I, I've got, I am the king of England. Like, this is a big deal. He, he gives up all that. It's, it's a fascinating story. And, it, and, and there's, this, there's this really famous, if you've got your Bible, flip to the right, just a couple of pages to 1 Samuel 23. If you don't, I put it up here for you. There's this verse that really, that really always captivates me. Um, this is what 1 Samuel 23, um, let me tell you the backstory. David is starting to worry. He's, now, he's running for his life, and he's starting to really worry. He's starting to really worry, and he's downhearted. He's, he's, he's downhearted. And, and it's in this desert of Ziph that it says that, 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 that Jonathan went and found him. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because Jonathan knew where he was hiding. Isn't that wild? Like, if you're running for your life, you don't typically tell people where you're staying. Especially the son of the guy trying to kill you. That just goes to show you how deep they're covenant had gone. And there in the desert of Ziph, it says that, that, that when, when, when David saw Jonathan, his countenance lifted. I always thought that was impressive. And, and this is what it says. He, he remind, this is Jonathan talking. He says, don't be afraid. He goes and finds him in the desert, in the caves. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. 
And I will be second to you, and even my father Saul knows this. It actually says in 1 Samuel 23 that David, that, that Jonathan helped David find strength in God. That he helped him find strength in God. And, and, he, and he, says, he, he says, the sovereignty of God, my father won't lay a hand on you. By the way, Saul is trying to lay a hand on him. David's prophesying over his friend right now, and he's saying, no, it's not, you're okay. I'm telling you, your life is protected. Your life is protected. But here's the big question. Like, the question that's always in my mind that has, has, has just fascinated me forever about, about Jonathan is why? why? Why would you give up the throne? It was his and nobody, not even the God followers, let's just call them that. Not even the Yahweh followers would have questioned it. They would have said, no, this is yours. It was given to you. It's, it's the way it's supposed to be done in the ages, in the history. It's yours. So what in the world would make Jonathan do that? Well, here's what I would say. When it comes to following God, you have to want the kingdom more than you want the throne. And that's what Jonathan can teach us today. You have to want the kingdom more than you want the throne. He had every right to be on the throne. But he, he knew that that was David's throne. Jonathan was so committed to furthering the kingdom of the Lord God of Israel that he gave up everything that was supposed to be his. And, and no, you know what? He could have taken that throne and nobody would have called him selfish, would they? Nobody would have called him selfish. But in his heart, he knew it wasn't his. So you have to want the kingdom more than you want the throne. Everything Saul wanted was for himself. Saul was threatened. Saul wanted the throne and he wanted the kingdom. He wanted both. There's a word that is used here in verse uh, 14. It's actually, in, in chapter 20, it's used several times. Chapter 20, verse 14, when, when they're making the covenant... Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord? There's that word. It's a, it, it's a word that is very familiar with the Old Testament. It's, it's a word that you kind of have to, um, you have to ha halfway uh, cough when you say it. Everybody, uh, and I'm not going to do that for you. It's just too comical. But it's a word, hesed. And, and the, the word hesed, let's go to show, show it to him. Yeah, the word hesed means, that word loving kindness, it, it means fierce loyalty or it means redemptive favor. Fierce loyalty. The mercy. And, and it's used kind of two ways. It's used as the mercy of God, showing that God has this fierce loyalty to you. But it can also be used between people. It can also be used person to person. It means steadfast love, love that never fails, love that is way deeper than just words. It means fierce love, like, I mean fierce love, right? Love to the end. We may all die, but I'm going to die with you kind of idea, right? He says, David, will you be with me like that? Because there's something else, because David has to learn to trust Jonathan, 
But Jonathan also knows, oh yeah, David, you got to trust me right now while you don't have the throne. But when you do get the throne, can I trust you? Are, are you going to take care of my kids? Are you going to take care of my family? It's a big deal. See, the, this idea about unity and loyalty in the church... It plays out right here in this word hesed. It plays out a lot because you've got to understand that in the Old Testament, this is really important, in the Old Testament, righteousness, righteousness is not defined in the way you define it in the New Testament. We define righteousness in the New Testament through the, the, the common definition of who Jesus was. We are made righteous in Jesus' name, Right? But in the Old Testament, righteousness is defined by fidelity to the relationship. D don't miss that. In the Old Testament, righteousness is defined by fidelity to the relationship. Meaning, first, the fidelity to God. What, why did God bring judgment to people so many times? They broke loyalty to the relationship. So righteousness is defined in the Old Testament by were you faithful to the covenant? But it can also be defined by fidelity this way too. Steadfast love. See, loyalty to the relationship vertically and loyal to the relationship horizontally was how righteousness is often defined in the Old Testament. And I want you to know, don't think for a second. Don't think for a second that what you see happening in this story in David and Jonathan doesn't hit you in 2022 because I can promise you that it does. I can promise you that it does because you see it actually, Jonathan's desire, see, to, if you want to see the kingdom move in your life, you have to give up the throne to get the kingdom. We have to get ourselves out of the way. We have to lay down our personal desires because if we know that, what did the book of James just say, that from our own personal desires and from our own personal ambitions come disorder, right? Disorder. You want to see disorder in a church? Have an agenda. Have an agenda. You've, you've seen that. I mean, for those of you that have been in church, you've seen people with agendas. So don't think that this idea of laying down your agenda, if you want the kingdom, you've got to give up the throne. And, and if, you, if you don't think this matters in 2022, here's what had to happen. You see, because Jonathan had to get himself out of the way for David to be king. And for David to be king, it mattered, and it mattered a lot. Because from... Because the first verse in the book of Matthew tells us that from the genealogy of David would come a Messiah. See, David was a forerunner of a Christ type. He's seen as a Christ type in the Old Testament, so, somewhat. So, so Jonathan had to get his own personal desires out of the way that the lineage of David would grow. And from that lineage of David and the tree of Jesse would come your redemption. 
You see, it matters a lot that we understand this idea. I think the most misunderstood thing about unity is that it's all we just all supposed to get along because it makes the church look better. It doesn't because I'm going to carry you a little deeper. Let's go a little deeper into why this idea of oneness, fidelity, fidelity to the house of God and fidelity one to another. Because one of the things I love about the church is that so many wide and different backgrounds all crash in together, man. And we have radically different stories. But we have that homothamadon, that same passion. I love that about the people of God. We can lay down our wants and our desires. We can give up our thrones to gain the kingdom you know Jesus actually prayed for that there's a prayer that's that's prayed in John chapter 17 and and in that prayer Jesus goes into a long prayer he's praying for the disciples he's actually praying for you go read it he's praying for you and, and in that prayer, this is what Jesus says. He's praying to the Father, and I put it on the screen for you. It's John 17, verse 22. Jesus says to the Father, Now I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. He's praying for our oneness. Don't read past that. Don't be fast right there. Don't be in a hurry. I'm praying that they will be one because you and I are one. I in them and you are in me. May they, he's talking about you and me now. This is where he's talking about, right right here, people at Clearview. The modern day church, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You see, the idea of us being together and us laying aside our personal agendas and us us coming together with our same one-mindedness that that you saw in the book of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, the reason that matters so much is not that we're... This is important. It's not just so that we are all playing nice on the ecclesiastical playground. Our oneness opens the door for the spreading of the gospel. Look at that verse. Jesus tells you why he wants you to be one. He's not just praying, oh God, make them unified. He actually tells you why. He says, may they experience perfect unity so that the world will know that you sent me. Our oneness... Our steadfast love, our fierce loyalty one to another, our homothamadon, our same passion, our, all of those things, you know what that does? It opens the door up. Look, let me tell you what's not happening right here. Jesus isn't lowering the theological bar just so that everybody can step over it. You know, we can, let's just lower the, you know, the standards till we can all just be on the same page. We're talking about apostolic gospel mission right here. Apostolic gospel advancement. He's not lowering the bar. He's raising it. He's actually saying, I'm going to raise it so high, Jason, that you have to lay down everything that you demand in the church, everything you want to see in the church, all your ability to vote on this and vote on You're laying all that down, Bubba, so that you can go over it. Bubba's a big Deuteronomy word. It's in there. You'll find it. It's in Hebrews. You're going to have to lay all that down so that 
you can gain the kingdom. See, Jason, if you, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, Jason, well, there's only one throne, and I'm on it, not you. And so I have to come to that place in my life where I'm crucified in Christ and I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. In the life I do live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20 tells us. No, you see, it's understand that when we, are, when we are unified, when we are of the same mind, the world can hear the gospel message. Don't underestimate it, friends. The togetherness of the saints paves the way for the transformation of the sinner. The togetherness of the saints paves the way for the transformation of the sinner. See, we're called saints in this room. You don't feel like a saint. Be honest with you, I don't really feel like a saint, especially during ragweed season. I think thoughts and say things, curse creation, all that stuff. You may not feel like a saint, but you are. You're set apart in Christ. You're made holy. That's all saint means. You're made holy in Christ. You're made holy in Christ. So the steadfast love and the steadfast loyalty and the oneness of of the saints, it opens the door for the transformation. The togetherness of the saints literally opens the door for the transformation of the sinner, and it's super important. I think what Jesus, you know what I think what Jesus is saying right here? I think Jesus is saying in that verse, he is saying, God, Father, I am praying they are so together-minded, so same passion-minded, that people outside the covenant of God will look at those people as so alien to this world. They would, who are those people? Like, I've never seen people love each other like that. I have never seen rich people walk right beside poor people. I've never seen loyalty like that. Who are these people? That they would help each other when the other one is like really down. They, They would come alongside each other. Nobody does that in 2022. I mean, you don't see people. I mean, think about it. Our whole country is built on self-sustaining stamina. And I mean, it's just who we are. It's how Americans are. You, you live your own life. You captain your own ship. And all of a sudden, you see these people that are so in it for the other person. They're so willing to take second seat, even third seat. They're, they're so willing to take fourth or fifth place just so somebody else can advance. Nobody does that. Who does that? Jesus people. Jesus' people do that because they know that this world is not their home. You see, we are called into oneness, friends. And the togetherness of the saints, it it will pave the way for the transformation of the sinners, but in order for that to happen, if you want the kingdom, well, you've got to give up the throne. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? 
Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.